0: you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. By the way, this is the longest of the letters. The longest of the letters to the least known church. We really don't know much about this particular church. We would like to read it so that again you have an idea of the direction we're going here. And this is the corrupt church, the church that tolerated sin. Now again, we, we saw issues with the other churches, such as Ephesus lost their first love, synagogue of Satan, they were, some of them were suffering, you know, all the different issues, um, Last week we looked at a compromising church that had the doctrine of Balaam, and Nicolaitans. But this is the corrupt church. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And As, as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I would give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do, do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my, words, or keeps my works until the end, To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, that's the longest of the letters to the seven churches. To the church at Thyatira, a corrupt church. Now, as we think of the word corrupt, let me say this, that the Lord Jesus Christ desires a holy church. He desires a pure church. And when I say church, I'm referring primarily universal. But we get the universal, universal being all true believers, but then we go back, a step back one and say, but in order to have a pure church, true church, universal true believers, he wants also a purity in his local church. And what we're going to be looking at is a local church. Many of the passages I'm referring to are about local churches. Like in Ephesians 5, 29, 26, it says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. This is talking about the church with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, the Lord Jesus Christ desires a holy and pure church. Now, many times because we live in a broken world, in a sinful world, we are anything but, right? Sin creeps in. and That's why in Matthew 18, Jesus himself instructs his disciples and says this. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him, His fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take one or two or more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, I mean, those other witnesses, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him him be to you a heathen, and a trader, or tax gatherer, because tax gatherers in that day and age were traders. They were hired by Rome to gain taxes, and whatever they were able to secure beyond what Rome required, they could keep. So you can imagine how hated tax gatherers were. And we're not told to hate the sinner that's unrepentant, but we are told to go and confront them. We are told to confront sin, Okay, that's not an easy message in our day and age, is it? Because everybody is tolerant of everything, right? Just turn on the news, that makes it obvious. Everybody is tolerant of everything. And yet within the Church of Jesus Christ, the desire, his desire is that we be holy and pure. And when sin is obvious, and by the way, we're not we're not Christian police. <laughs> you know. Oh, there it is. There it is. There's sin. But when it's obvious, you confront it with the purpose. By the way, the purpose is not, boy, I got one over on you. The purpose of confrontation is that you might win your brother. In other words, that they would repent and come back to walking with Christ in a holy and pure way. That's why we confront to call the sinner back to righteous thinking, to call the sinner back to righteous behavior. The idea is this, we need to be about the business of purging from the church those who stubbornly cling to their sin. Now again, we're not talking about somebody that is struggling with a sin, who repents but keeps finding themselves falling back in, and, and, you know, I want to do right. It's the person who stubbornly says, I will not. Again, the purity of the church is is, uh, is what we're talking about. Now you might say, is it really that important? Well, again, Acts chapter 5. Remember the church at Pentecost had just been, really, just been created within a, a few weeks, months. And we have a, a couple who comes and brings a gift. They didn't have to bring the gift, by the way. And the name is Ananias and wife named Sapphira. And they sold the possession, Acts 5, verse 2. And he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife. And he had, but he said that it was all. And laid it at his at the disciples' feet. Remember what happened? He drops down dead. They take him out. She drops down dead. Do you, would you say that's serious? Would you say that's serious? That and and notice what he says. What um, um, that you have lied against the Holy Spirit. And, and notice this in verse eleven. Look at and. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. <laughs> you better believe it. I mean, what if we had that happen here? Someone came up, said something, trying to resolve a conflict, and the person lied, and they dropped down dead right there. Eh, man, I don't know if I want to be a part of that church. You know, I just, I just come because of their church dinners. <laughs> Yeah, look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So, So you get the point. God takes, Christ takes very serious the purity of his church. In fact, whereas I said before that Christ desires a pure church, actually you could say it this way, Christ demands a pure church. Christ demands it. Now again, sometimes churches don't do that. Over in First Corinthians chapter five, we looked at this very briefly last week. Remember, in First Corinthians five, a, a man had his uh, father's wife, a stepmother, sexual immorality with a stepmother, and. And look at uh, verse 1, it says it is actually reported that this sexual immorality is among you. That's the issue. Not that someone's immoral, this is an immoral world, but now th- this immorality has crept into the church. It's flagrant sin. And such immorality as, is not even named among the Gentiles. Again, a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant, you're puffed up, and have not rather mourned, you should have been broken over this sin. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among us. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged. I mean, I've already judged this. I'm not even, Paul says this, I'm not even there and I can tell you the, the correct answer. I've judged it and I'm not even there. It's black and white. I'm not even there, but I've judged uh, him who has done this deed. And then he gives a command in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, because I'm not going to be there, but you need to deal with this, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now again, if you don't do that, he goes on to talk about how sin is like yeast, leaven, and and it permeates. You're going to find that sin will keep reproducing. You've got to take care of it. I, I find it interesting because as I look around and, and, and watch men and, and leaders and churches, how sometimes a church has a very strong leadership base and they preach the word strongly, but they're not willing to deal with sin personally. In their own personal lives and in their church. I find it so interesting, though. Thus saith the Lord, and Jesus is the Savior, and all these marvelous truths. But when sin is looking them right in the face, they won't deal with it. Well, you might, you know, someone might get upset. You might offend somebody. And then you add on top of that all the seeker-sensitive, you know, churches out there, you know, the churches that bend over backwards to meet the need of the unbeliever. And in process allowing the church literally to have tares among wheat. Now, by the way, you're always gonna have individuals who are unbelievers in a church. You're not trying to get rid of unbelievers. But but the church is supposed to be pure. You have to have a high standard. And believers and unbelievers should say, Whoa, I know that your God is holy, I am not, and I need him, and then run to the cross because that's where salvation and forgiveness is found versus, I just want to make you feel comfortable. I don't want anybody to, you know, I'm going to give you a message where nobody gets offended. That's not, that's, no, then we become a, we become a club. We become a club. We're not a club. So, let me give you a couple of applications. We have to take sin very seriously, whether it be in our own personal lives. Let me end, stop right there. Are you taking sin personally, I mean, taking it very seriously if it's in your own life? Are you taking the sin that you're dealing with in your own personal life serious? Are you dealing with it? But also in the church's life. Because again, we're not a club. We've got to keep this standard high. And by the way, this is a standard, not a suggestion. (laughs) This is a commandment. You know, let's not be confused on this. We, We must, if we are a church, if we are a gathering of saints, Christ wants his church pure. And when it comes to truth, be careful. Let me me warn you with one other thing. When it comes to truth, we have to be careful. You know that you're in a very dangerous seat. You're in a very dangerous position. Every time at the end of the letter, either the very end or just before the very end, Jesus to the church, which are speaking to the people, says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the idea is this, you sit in a very dangerous seat because you are hearing the word of God that now you are responsible to live up to. Or to say it this way, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. If you hear a truth, God expects us to apply it. If you hear a truth and you decide not to, you become hardened to that truth. Isn't that true? By the way, that's why many times people, when they first get saved, it's just new and exciting, and I just love Jesus and I just want to walk with him. And their life is full of passion. Take five years and you say, why is it not as passionate? It's probably because one of the reasons is your heart's gotten hardened. Oh, I've heard that truth before. Yeah, I got it. I got to be pure. Yeah, I got to walk with him. No, no, no. The same sun (laughs) that melts butter hardens clay. Sometimes we become hardened. That's why he says, if you have ears, hear. Hearing means that you're going to do, you're going to follow. Follow what I say. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And James says this, deceiving your own selves. Because what's easy is you can get truth upon truth upon truth and me and I could pass the theological exam. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is walking in holiness before him. Be holy for I am holy, Peter tells his his, uh, congregation. So, if you hear truth and disregard it, then your heart is just becoming a little more hardened to it. If, if you know there's a sin in your life that you're not taking care of, if you're not dealing with it in, 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 a, in a, like how Samuel hacked apart a Agag, as one man said, you know, in other words, with intensity, then your heart's just becoming a little more, more hardened. No, we don't want our hearts to be hardened. We want to hear truth and be doers of that truth. Well, let's get into this, this uh, church. Because again, they were, uh, many of them were not hearing truth. Their hearts were hardened. The commission to the angel of the church of Thyatira. That's the commission. Again, the longest of Christ's letters goes to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the seven churches. It was the least in size and beauty and importance. Uh, they had some that was, they were be, being commended for, some stuff, but they had a whole lot that they were being condemned for, condemned or challenged or the concern, however you want to say that. Again, this is just a small little... Well, I, we don't know if it was a small church, to be honest with you. By the way, that's an interesting thing about all these churches. You never know about the size. You don't know their budget. You don't know their... Uh, well, obviously, they didn't even meet in churches back then; it was homes. Uh, you don't know their programs. You don't know how many how many uh, leaders they had. You, you don't. That's not important. See, man judges by outward; God judges by the heart, right? And as we look at our church, it's not size and programs and budgets and buildings; it's what's going on in the heart. Uh, are we a pure? Holy Church. Are we a church that are, is passionate about Christ and doing His will? So again, we don't know much about the church, but we do know they, they were in existence most likely for a number of decades. This is therefore second, third generation Christians. As one guy said, you can compare this, the difference between Flat Creek, Tennessee, and Los Angeles, California, because that's kind of how it is. The, the third Thyatira is F- Flat Creek and... You know, like take the church at Ephesus. And that would be like L.A. Uh, just a distinction in the size. It wasn't, I mean, just the, uh, the, the city of Thyatira was, was uh, somewhat small. In fact, this, let's go on to the second, the city. It was about 45 miles southeast of Pergamon. So let's, let's get our map out. Actually, I got you a new map. Uh, well, that's not a new map. That's Pergamon, we looked at it yesterday, 45 minutes. Uh, oh, that's the new map. Um, like we started here in Ephesus, right here's uh, uh, Patmos. And then Smyrna, the suffering church, and tolerating and uh, some of their issues. And now we go over the mound into Thyatira. See, this was the postal route. That, that's why I like this map, because it kind of showed the actual um, the road. So again, just another church. From here to here, well, about 100 miles, but you couldn't get there from there. You had to go around. Well, you could, but there'd be a lot of dangers. So again, the city... Oh, let me show you one other thing. Is it still up there? Um, The only importance of this right here was militarily as they came across from the east. If an enemy came across from the east, this was like the main, uh, first last defense before Pergamon. Okay, so for military, but the only thing is, is, this had mountain range, this was somewhat flat, so basically the, the enemy would roll over them, but at least they were, you know, somewhat of an impediment. So militarily it was just a buffer zone. Towards it. Uh, Politically it had no importance. Uh, religiously it really had very little importance as well. Uh, it didn't have an acropolis, an acropolis was that, you know, 800 or 1,000 foot above uh, the city that, that they would uh, put their temples and their altars of their gods. You know, remember the, uh, the altar of Diana in Ephesus, you know, and it was hundreds of feet above. So you could see the temple. When you approached Ephesus, you could see on the Acropolis here, they didn't have any Acropolis. Uh, and emperor worship, though it was part of the, the entire empire, wasn't a, a main hold here or no major pagan deities no what is that that's not you're doing things (laughs) no no just just what i need honey next (laughs) next i I love this thing too this is really cool um i'm going to mention this guy apollo Uh, he was one of the greek roman gods in fact just hold that for a second um because it really gets us into, just hold, you can take him off. We don't know if that's, well I guess that's exactly, we have a number of, uh, and that's how they envision the guy, the, the guy, not the guy, the God. Um, let me give you one other thing though, because this is important, a couple other minor things. We don't know much about the city, although, uh, remember in Acts 16 it says, Lydia was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, this, is, this was her hometown. Now commercially though, again remember I told you politically no importance, military just a buffer zone, religiously no Acropolis. But it was a blue collar town. Many highly organized trade guilds or think of them as uh, labor unions were here. See uh, there was a lot of, uh, not there, but a lot of production was coming out of Thyatira. <laughs> yeah. I really need to get this computer so I can run it. I need, I need the power, give me the uh, controller. <laughs> yeah Brooke just said you can have it <laughs> in fact you know if you keep it up John I'm not even going to do it for you <laughs> I'll tell you I you have no idea how good the ladies are up here with you know when you see the words on the music and all that that's a lot of work and a lot of uh, coordination so thank you Anyways, this uh, trade unions, just think of it that. Uh, in the fields, uh, and this is what they produced, in the field of clothing, uh, wool, linen. Okay, again, going back to uh, uh, Lydia, a seller of purple. They, uh, they would uh, not only make the, uh, the clothing, but they also dyed it. And they, they, they came up with the dye from, uh, I forget the type of root, but there was a certain root that they, they crushed down and made the dye out of. Uh, so dyeing was an important, dyeing, D-Y-I-N-G, D-Y-I-N-G. Uh, tanning, pottery, baking, and bronze smithing. Bronzing was big there. Now, let me give you the perspective, though. Trade guilds would have played a prominent role, not only in the financial and the economic, but also the social, the political, and the religious life. See, we don't think of it this way. Okay, so that was their, uh, you know, that's what they did for a living, no, no, pressure from the guilds to, quote, hold a job or run a business, it was necessary to be a member of the guild. See, if you're going to do this, and you're going to make clothing, you have to be a member of the union. Unfortunately, these unions were not like even our unions, they were a lot worse, you know, Different. Each guild had its patron deity. Now catch that. Each union had its patron deity in whose honor, feasts, or seasonal festivals were held, complete with meat, sacrifice to those deities, those idols, and sexual immorality. One of the things that the the, uh, labor guilds, the labor unions were known for was their sexual revelries. Now... Christians face the dilemma of attending those feasts or possibly losing their livelihood. You get saved and you are a leather maker and all of a sudden you can't go to that thing. They're, they're, they're sacrificing to their God. They want you to sacrifice and eat meat offered to idols and they want you to partake in the revelries afterwards. You can't do that. How, how are you going to walk with Jesus Christ and, and, and be part of that union, that guild? Do you see the conflict? By the way, we are coming to this conflict in America. See, for years, being an American was being a Christian. At least one didn't really step on the feet of the other. But now, you're seeing the divide widen. And Christians have to determine, uh, who are you going to serve? Caesar or Christ? So that was the... That was the, the conflict that was going on in this church at Thyatira. Let's look at the uh, correspondent. Let's see, let's see Christ here. Verse 18. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, he brings up, Christ himself brings up three things about himself. The first is the Son of God. These things says the Son of God. Previously in chapter 1 he called himself the Son of Man. This is the only time, and I believe in Revelation, that uh, he is referenced as the Son of God, and it points directly towards his deity. In other words, God is speaking. Now, I believe there might be—I say I believe—it might be very strong possibility that he brings this up to create a a like a burr under the saddle to those who were confessing not that he was the Son of God, but that Caesar was the Son of God. Because that's how Caesar wanted to have himself referred to as, the Son of God. Caesar, the Son of God. In other words, Christ, I believe, uses these three names, these three characteristics of him, each time jabbing the society saying what you're believing is not true. You believe, your leader Caesar believes that he's the Son of God. He references himself as the Son of God. The second way he reference, he has penetrating discernment. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And we saw that already in chapter 1, verse 14. Again, uh, Second Chronicles says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro and throughout the earth. And, and uh, the idea with the fi- uh, flame of fire is that his vision, his understanding, his discernment is penetrating. I love Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And therefore, we should be able to easily pray for our officials because they are not going to get away with anything. I tell you, the more you know that they won't get away with anything, the more I can pray for them. I can use their names even. There was a time I couldn't even use their names. You know, I just prayed for... Uh, I didn't want to mention certain people. No, no. I know that sounds... It sounds so superficial. Like, come on, get over it, John. No. You've got to know that we all will give an account. And his eyes are ablaze. And his sight, everything is before him, naked and opened. <laughs> so again... His discernment. By the way, this might be a real knife in the gut to the society because there, if there was one God that was uh, above any other God. See, they had gods. It just didn't have an Acropolis. was Apollo. Let's put that guy up. Um, if you see him, he was uh, primarily the sun god. See, he was pictured this way. Uh, youthful, the god of light. God of truth. In fact, there was a lot of things that was attributed to him. Uh, these are the ones. Light, sun, truth, healing, music, poetry, youth. I mean, all the different things. And, uh, you know, it's just like that's what I want to be like. Do I look like a- him? <laughs> okay. Now, why I say that is light, sun, And when Jesus said, I am the one that has the eyes like a flame of fire, it might literally be like a a knife going into the the religious... No, no. He's not the one that produces the sun. He's not the one that's the God of the light. I am. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Remember when uh, the children of Israel came out of uh, Egypt? Every one of those plagues were in direct contradiction, or, or actually cutting at each one of the gods in Egypt. I think many times when Jesus is speaking, he is literally saying, no, Caesar is not the son of God, I am. And I am the one that has the eyes flame of fire. This guy doesn't, you know. By the way, next picture. I mean, this is how they envisioned him because they had a number, you know. There's he uh, with five women around him, you know, uh, or six and just, you know, here look. You know, and just kind of being served. Doesn't that kind of remind you men of, of your homes as a husband? <laughs> I hope not bad, but I mean you know your wife. Know. <laughs> but you get the point. And then finally, perfect judgment. His feet like a like fine brass, burnished bronze, some of the versions say. And again, that might be going after the guilds, because one of the guilds was uh bronzing. Okay? And um, so, it might be this, that he identifies himself, no, no, you think Caesar is the son of God, and he's the, your protector, but I'm the son of God, I'm your protector. You think Apollo is the one that gives son, and the pleasures of life, and all the good things, but the reality is... I'm the one that has the eyes like a flame of fire, and I'm the one that judges. He doesn't. And you go to the trade guilds for your provision, but I have feet like a fine brass. I, I think some of this might just, you could summarize it like in Matthew 6 where it says, no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one or hate the other, right? And I'll tell you what, as our world gets more and more corrupt, more and more dark, Christians are going to have to continually make the commitment, the commitment that Jesus Christ is the one who provides and protects. And he is our king and no other. And I do believe there will be a day when, uh, well, the world already hates us and 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 the ungodly already hate us, but it's going to become more evident. Number four, the commendation. The commendation, I know your works. And again, that word know means know precisely. Like with a laser, it's that word that says, I know completely who you are. I know your works. And then he names five of them. I know your love. That's agape. By the way, this is a pretty good measure of a good church, I would say, wouldn't you? Love, faith, service, patience in your works. The last are more than the first. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty good church? Let's, you know, let's go join Thyatira. Um, again, love, that is not the oh, it's not the friendship love, it's the agape. Uh, Your version, by the way, if you have an NIV or a New American, I think it says this, love and faith, service and patience. Other versions say love and service, faith and patience. But the words are always the same. But again, what is love? Again, sacrificing for God and for your fellow man. Willing to sacrifice, that's what love is. Showing love for God and one another. And then he says, I know your faith. Faith, you can also translate that faithfulness. Uh, Again, the true Christians were dependable. They were reliable. They were consistent. He said, I know your faithfulness. Are you faithful? (laughs) Are you faithful? I mean, are you the type of Christian, if you're a Christian, that people can depend on? Your word is good. You serve out of love. Again, often love and faith are connected in Scripture. We see that over and over Love and faithfulness. See, it's, it's one thing to say I love, it's another thing to love with faithfulness because faithfulness says you can depend on my love. I'm walking with the Lord and I'm walking consistently. In fact, look at third word, service. You can connect love and service. Those who love will express that love in service to others. That's why I think some versions actually connect love and service, faith and faith. Because if you love, you're going to serve. You're going to meet the need. And that word service literally is what we get our word deacon from. Literally, deacon. You actually have an official group of men in this church that have given themselves to serve. Service is so important in the church that God says, I'm going to actually have an official uh, group in in the local church that are actually going to be called servers. (laughs) By the way, maybe you are a man and you are a man who has been called to serve and you want to serve his church. And if you're a mature man, not perfect man, mature, you ask God, maybe God is calling you to be a deacon. But love, faith, service, your patience, hupoman, Uh, their faithfulness was expressed. Now again, I'm going to connect faith and patience. See, love and service is connected, I believe. Faith and patience, I think, is also. If you have faithfulness, it will be expressed in steadfastness, especially during trials. That word, there's two different words for patience in Scripture. One's macro, out. The other one is this word. And whereas one is patient with people, this word most, most often refers to patience in circumstances. So this church was patient. Or at least the faithful ones were faithful in their steadfastness during the trials. They were enduring, in other words. And then, like I said, in E, the last one, And as for your works, which I already said I know, uh, the last are more than the first. See, you're growing in your love and your faith and your service and your patience. You're growing in those things. I mean, like, sign me up. I want to be at this church. This is a great church, right? This is a good church. Well, the Christians in the church are a good church. And I I highlight that because I believe what's what's happening is there was many Christians, but there was also some who were not Christians. And that's where we get to the next part. Let, Let me just back up for a second, though, and say this. This church was apparently a growing and maturity church in these areas. But a church may appear on the surface to have an effective ministry, be growing numerically, even loving one another, yet immorality and false doctrine, if not confronted, will bring judgment from the Lord of the church. That's the transition I want you to see. Yes, they did some things good. And they're even growing in those. But now he says, verse 20, nevertheless, but, it's the same word as but in other, other uh, you know, uh, passages. But, you know, <laughs> isn't that a hard word? You know, this is what I really like, but. Now let's look at, but I have something against you. Actually, he says, not something, a few things against you. A few things against you. Who's the you? It's actually singular. And as one man said, the use of the singular pronoun points this admonition, again, this admonition from Jesus Christ, especially to the leader and leaders of the congregation. He's talking to the pastor. He's talking to the elder. He's talking to the leader. Said, I have something against you you not Jezebel we're going to hear about Jezebel in a moment Jesus rebukes the church leaders his his greatest rebuke is not Jezebel it's the leaders why because they were unwilling to confront Jezebel he turns his eyes a gaze of fire eyes of fire and says i have something against you i, I tell you what that will stop a man a leader right in the, because we we judge churches wrongly and with the wrong standard. Jesus Christ says, yes, you have some good things, but I have something against you. Because, second part of verse 20, because you allow that woman. See, now again, you is a singular against. So he's saying, I have something against you, leader. leader by the way, it can be a group. So it can be the, the, the elder board can be a, a singular in that sense, right? I have something against you, why? What, what do I? Because you allow the woman Jezebel to call herself a prophetess. That's a lie. She's not a prophetess. You allow her to do it though. There's this woman in your church and she's calling herself a prophetess and you're not, you're not correcting her. You're allowing her to go on and say, well, I'm a prophetess from God. To teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I want you to connect those thoughts back to those guilds. I think what was happening is the big picture. And we'll break this down. What was happening is you, you had a false prophet, prophetess, in the church that was promoting the idea that you can connect with your, your living, in other words, whether you're a tanner or you know part of the guild. You can go to the reception. You can offer to the God. You can eat the meat sacrificed to the idol, you can be part of the revelry and still be walking with Jesus. And this prophetess, you're allowing to teach in the church. By the way, she's not just any old woman. I mean, Jezebel. Think about Jezebel in the Old Testament. By the way, this is not her name, most likely. It's like if I call you Judas, you're like a, you're Judas. That's not your name, but but that just immediately tells you Oh, the traitor, right? Well, this one is, when you think of Jezebel, you know what you immediately think of? Vile. Wicked, right? Again, Jezebel was not a rena- real name, but like the infamous, infamous Canaanite wife of Israel's Old Testament, King Ahab, that was King Ahab's wife, who not only led Ahab to worship Baal, but through Ahab, had propagated her teaching of idolatry throughout all of Israel. That's Jezebel. Jezebel marries Ahab and through her wickedness got him to worship Baal because she was a Canaanite and then also all of Israel turned and worshiped Baal. You can find the story in uh, 1 Kings 16. You don't have to turn there, but it, it is an interesting... I'll just read one little piece... 1 Kings 16, uh, verse, what did I just say? 30, excuse me. It says, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So Ahab was a really wicked man himself. But then he this is how wicked he was. And it came to pass as though, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the, in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nepat, that he took as wife... Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbeol, king of Sidians. Now, he says this. This guy was so wicked, he was willing to date. Well, he was willing to marry Jezebel. That's how wicked the guy was. Pretty bad when your wickedness is seen in, in who you marry. Last part, this is what it says. Then he set up an altar for the Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Why? Because he married a vile, wicked woman. Let me say this. This is a small rabbit trail, but I need to say this. Who you marry will have a huge impact, a huge effect on your spiritual life. Is that true? Who you marry will have a huge uh, impact on your spiritual life. Who you marry will have a huge impact on your family. who you, Who you marry will have a huge impact on your legacy will have a huge impact on your eternity. right? By the way, you say I don't know. It sounds kind of like an isolated case here. Well. <laughs> Let me just, since we're in 1 Kings, let me just go back a couple, verse, or a couple chapters. King Solomon. It says this of King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women. Boy, that's an understatement, if there was ever an understatement. That is an understatement. Loved many? kind of give me the, how many? Well, it says in the um, second part of verse 2, you shall, God says this, you shall not intermarry with them, are they with you, surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, to the women. And then it tells you how many. Because women are always going to be the ones that bring you down, men. No, I shouldn't say No, no, no. And he... No, actually, the reality is many times the women are the sanctifying effect in a home. But in verse 3 it says this, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart. And just like his wives turned away his heart from the Lord, and just like Jezebel galvanized wickedness and Ahab, and just the fact that he married her showed how wicked he was. So Jezebel of this church was turning the heart of the church away from the Lord. Okay? She was teaching ungodliness. Through her influence, they were moving towards the. Uh, basically, it was Satan's agent. Just think of it that way. And again, you, you, we don't really know a lot about. How do you mean Satan's agent? I mean, what. Well, first of all, the fact that she was a woman and she was teaching in the church violated 1 Timothy. It's not that women are inferior. Please do not. But it's just like a man should be the leader of the home. So there is a structure. God has structure for all his institution. That's, and and it, it was very clear that a woman was not supposed to be teaching, and yet that's what she was doing. Now think about this. He says to the leaders of the church, I got something against you. Because you're going directly against my word. Not only that, but she was teaching error and seducing my servants to commit sexual immorality. Those guild festivals were known for sexual orgies. They were known for it. When men and women are corrupt, and the darker they get, the more sexually deviant they get, right? The more you see our world go towards paganism, the more you see America go towards. Just understand, there'll be greater sexual deviance. And so it was creeping into the church again, we don't know exactly how it crept in. It might See, there was a number of errors that were out there. Dualism said, the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. She might have been saying it this way, listen, God doesn't care about the flesh, He only cares about your spirit. That's called dualism. She might have been promoting this ungodliness through that type of teaching. She might have been like Romans 6, go on sinning that grace may abound. The more you sin, the more you see God's grace. There's a number of avenues that you can get a group to be sexually immoral and following after idols. There's vehicles that you, you know, false teachings that will get you to the final compromise, let's say. Okay, we don't know. The only thing I know is this. The leaders were failing and Christ was not happy. (laughs) Christ was now the warrior. By the way, when you see feet... Many times that, that is talking about judgment, like I said earlier. Judgment. Uh, one of the things that conquering kings would, kings would often do is put the main leader, the main general, uh, on the ground, force him on the ground and put his foot on that person's neck. Now, if he stepped, he would be killed. If he, then he would live. But the point is, I have judgment. So Christ's feet means that I'm judging this. By the way, it's this. I'm judging this because you're not willing to. Now look at verse 21. I love this. And I gave her time to repent. Our Lord is so gracious. (laughs) Even this sexually immoral, vile, ungodly. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Underline that. Our Lord is gracious. By the way, the word repent means to turn. Turn. Right? It's really uh, summarized in Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. Right? See, if you cover, you're not going to prosper, but if you, if you confess and forsake, you'll find mercy. And she was not willing to do that. I gave her time. He gives you time. I tell you it's a fearful thing to have time and not use it well, right? Like you gave you time, and, and this is what happens many times, and you know, a, a person has time, and, and they've been told and wake up, listen. Go in this direction, Christian, and you don't heed. you get hardened. Like I said, the sun hardens the clay, and, and then this is even worse. And then you come to communion, and you partake. And you're proclaiming, I'm walking with Jesus and I'm walking with each other and you're not. And then they wonder why they're judged by God and chastened. Man, I have so many illnesses. I have so many sicknesses. By the way, every sickness is not because you're sinning. But many times it is. You know, if you're not willing to take care of your sin, God will chasten Be sensitive to what God wants to do. If if he's knocking, and yeah, that's my sin and I'm not taking care of it. Or I keep confessing and falling back. No, no. It might be that God's saying, you know what? I want you to connect with another mature Christian that can help you in the path of seeing victory here. Look at... I gave her time. Look at this. Verse 22. Indeed, behold... I mean, it's stop in your tracks. I will. He doesn't tell the this point out. He doesn't tell leaders, you failed. I will. It's in my hands now. I will cast her into a sickbed. Actually, the, it's, he's talking about death here. Death and probably even hell. I say that because look at what he says in verse 23. I will kill her children with death. Kill death. I mean, is he going to do any lust to Jezebel? Sick bed. I don't think that's for repentance. I believe he's pointing towards final. See, time has run out for this woman. But there's still hope of divine judgment to be averted from the rest. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I think the unless is not referring to her. I don't think... Now, you could disagree. You say, no, no, maybe she can repent too. Well, you do know Nebuchadnezzar, he repented, Right? Our God is gracious. He might be pointing to two. I I really think that this breaks it down into three categories. To Jezebel, her time is done. Now you might say, oh, he's so gracious that unless is also referring to her. To her followers, definitely, unless they repent. I think there's also a third category here, verse 23. I will kill her children with death unless they repent as well. It might be that it's talking about Jezebel, followers, spiritual children, those who even come from her and the followers. But but let's wrap it up this way, okay? Let's just, because we were out of time almost. I would say this. There's some lessons we can learn here. Churches should learn from what has happened in this church. Other churches, our church, then and now, our church needs to learn. God is very serious about purity. We shouldn't tolerate sin. We need to take, in fact, he says if, if you don't do this, I'm I'm going to pull off, uh, I'm going to shut your lamp down, Ezra, your light. And in actuality, Thyatira, it was uh, in the second century that they were dissolved. History says that. They, They didn't take it serious, they didn't take the warning serious. But notice what he says. We should take it serious. Why? And all the churches, this is the text, shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. But not only that, yeah, but what if I'm in a church and you know I'm I'm condemned with everyone else? Look at it, he says, no, no. Each person is responsible for their deeds. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that I am not judged for my brother's sins. I'm only judged for my own. Thank you that I am rewarded for my works towards you, not right? It's individual, okay? Even though this is a church, each one is individually. Responsible. Not for salvation. And again, salvation is by what? Grace through. But reward is because of works. Stum up. Reward. He's not talking about saving faith, saving faith is only through Christ. Finally, very quickly. The council now, to you, this is the leader, this is singular again, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira. You see the difference? To you, the leader, and to the rest in Thyatira. I believe he's pointing there to the godly remnant. As many as do not have this doctrine, in other words, you haven't followed this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. See, that's the immorality, that's the idolatry. You haven't tasted of the depths of Satan like these people have. Oh, they're in your church, but they're not true believers. As they say, I will put on you no other burden. I love that. You are fighting the good fight, and I'm not going to put any other burden on you. I know your love. I know your faithfulness. I know your perseverance. I am upset about those leaders who are not willing to take care of sin, but for you who are running the race, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Thank you, Lord. You know what we can handle. Again, It's interesting he didn't tell them to leave the church, although there probably was only that church in the area. I will say this, though, as a a truism, as it were, a a statement. Gospel-minded people must be in gospel-minded churches. In other words, just because he says, just hang on, hold fast, that's because there's no other church. But if you know of someone that's in a church that is teaching heresy, help them to get out of that church because... Gospel-minded people should be in gospel-minded churches. But he tells these people, hold on, you know, hold on. I'm not going to put any other burden on you. And then finally, the challenge, and he who overcomes, that's the true Christian. I think what you're seeing here is there's a godly remnant and there's also infiltration of ungodliness in the church. That's why I call it a corrupted church, a tolerating church. It doesn't mean that they all were corrupted, there was a godly remnant, but he calls those who are true believers, truly walking with him, and he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. This is what I'm gonna to do. To him I'm gonna give, I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule with, with them a, a rod of iron, rule them with a rod of iron. It's talking about the millennial kingdom. In other words, you're gonna rule with me. You know, one of the rewards of walking with him and victorious. And all the suffering that you have to do in this life, you'll be rewarded in that. You'll be, you'll be part of the, of the um, eternal, of the eternal kingdom. But this is actually the millennial kingdom. And in other words, write this down: faithfulness now equals responsibility then. Faithfulness now, responsibility then. And then finally. And I'll give him the morning star. It's interesting. Morning star is in Revelation 22 referring to Christ himself. He is the morning star. What do you mean he's going to give him the morning star? I think that Christ himself is saying, I believe this is where there might be, I can't tell you categorically, but I believe this is what he's saying. You walk with me now, you're going to have a fullness, you're going to have a greater fullness of my presence and my fellowship then. I thought thought we were all equal in heaven. Well, you're all there if you're a believer, but your responsibilities and perhaps even your sensitivity to the greatness and the fellowship of Christ, I believe, is part of the reward. So again, Morning Star, the closeness and the fellowship that you have with Christ will be rewarded as you've been faithful on this earth. Again, saved by grace, rewarded through works. Be faithful until he comes. Let's stand as we close.